Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do pray that you would really today just cause us to love your word, to be under this word, to, to see Christ in all of his glory. May it change us, Lord, as we come in this place in need of you, crying for mercy and just in need of all that you have. God, we are a needy people. And so, Father, may that song that we sung be true in our hearts today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18, as we continue to make our way through Luke. We have left off at verse 31. We're going to go Luke chapter 18, verse 31, all the way through 19, verse 10 this morning. It's really one big section, and I want us to see it in all of its, uh, and all that's there. And it's hard to separate these, these stories and these accounts. You know, as I was uh, looking at this passage, I realized that this passage is really, in one sense, about misunderstanding and making sure that you understand the right thing and you don't misunderstand Christ and, and who he is and what he's come to do. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about an experience I had at the home of one of my relatives one time, older relatives. I was sitting in a family room with a, with a husband, this relative, and, and he's watching TV. He got a new TV. It was a big TV. And because he was older, it was up a little bit louder. And he's watching this, and he was in awe of this great big TV that he'd gotten. And and his wife was in the, other, in, the, in the kitchen, and she was making some food. And he yells from the TV room, from the family room, he yells, Boy, isn't this TV great? This is a great TV. It's just so loud, you can hear everything. His wife said, Yes, the hearing aids they are making today are wonderful. Okay, So somehow she picked up that he was talking about hearing aids. He's talking about TVs. So I chuckled to myself, and he says, the sound is so clear. And she says, yes, technology's really amazing. The sound is very clear. She's yelling from the kitchen back. So she's talking about hearing aids. He's talking about TV. He says, it's just amazing. You know, they used to be just so much different a long time ago. And, uh, and she says, yes, they were, but it's, you know, it's, it, they've changed so much. And then he says... Yeah, and they've gotten so much bigger. And she goes, no, they haven't. They've gotten smaller. And he says, no, they're bigger. You can see them everywhere. She says, no, they're not. I can't tell if someone has one. What do you mean? You go in someone's house, they're all over the place. No, they're in people. You can't. And, so she, and they have an argument about this. I'm chuckling, and then I finally decide to intervene. Hey, She's talking about hearing aids. He's like, what? <laughs> and I go into the kitchen. I say, she, he's talking about televisions. Oh, it was this awkward moment. How do we resolve this? Because they're both mad at each other, right? But there's no way to resolve it because they're talking about two different things. Now, the reason why I thought about that experience this week is I was thinking, you know, it's amazing how sometimes... You can think you understand something, and it even works for a while. Right? Their conversation went on for quite a while, and it worked. It's amazing that you really can have two people, one talking about hearing aids, one talking about TVs, and they can talk for quite a while about it. 
until at some point it collides. And at that collision, things just stop making sense. And that's kind of what you have in one sense. The reason why I thought about it is, in this passage, Luke is recording for us kind of the final things we need to understand about Jesus. And it is amazing how we think we can understand Christ. How we think that we have it and we have it defined. And in one sense, it works. The things that we believe and the things that we got going, it works for us. It, it connects for us. But in reality, it doesn't always connect. And sometimes when we have this, if we have a misunderstanding about Jesus, it can go for a while and then eventually that, that misunderstanding that we have can collide with reality. And then we can be left insecure, we can be left confused, we can be left not understanding things. Those kind of communication breakdowns can happen, and the next thing you know, you're lost. Maybe you feel spiritually distant from God. Maybe you, you, you feel like you, you, you've lost touch with your meaning and purpose in life. Maybe you feel like you're whatever. Luke puts in here, he says, now listen, if you look at what, what's going on and the way the order of this is, at the end of 17, they're talking about the return of Jesus. And as they're talking about the return of Jesus, in chapter 18, he's beginning to tell us, this is how you're to endure to the end. And he's told us many things. He says, you got to pray and walk by faith and walk like a child and embrace the kingdom of God and reject the world. But then we get to this section here, and what he's telling us is, now listen, you need to understand who the Messiah is. And you need to understand what he's doing. And you need to make sure you understand your response to him. And those are the pieces that are very important to comprehend. Is there a little like bass echo going on that you can hear? I'm hearing a little feedback. I don't know if it's up on these monitors. but. And so this is what he's getting at. This is the, the, the pieces of this. He's really trying to get them to understand this is who Jesus is. And we're going to see this today. In fact, I've just taken this. This is not a very creative outline. I've just kind of broken this passage down, these, these stories down, into just four points. And it's all about understanding the mission. How you understand the mission of Jesus will completely determine how you live your life. And if you've misunderstood the mission, eventually you're going to collide. Eventually you're going to collide. And, and you'll have a moment where it won't connect. And so we see four things in this passage, in this whole section. The mission is accomplished by Jesus. We're going to see that here. We're going to learn about the cross, and we'll understand why the cross is important. We'll see then that that mission of the cross should drive me to call for mercy. And we're going to understand the role of crying for mercy in relation to Jesus. Very important you don't miss that. The mission calls me to follow Jesus. We're going to understand what that really means for your life, to follow Jesus. And then we're going to see that Jesus is out there seeking and saving the lost. Four things, but I will tell you, these four things are the things most people misunderstand about Jesus. You think you understand it. You think you're talking about TVs, and really you're talking about hearing aids. Or you think you're talking about hearing aids and you're really talking about... It's just two different things. And sometimes it's easy to miss this. And I want us to see this. And I want to see this for one very simple reason. This, these four things that are in this text really is what every church, what every, what every body of believers should be uniting around. And when you miss these four things, 
you know what you could wind up doing is you wind up uniting around something other than these four things. And then conflict comes. Then breakdowns come. Then churches collide. They split. All kinds of things happen. These are the four things that should anchor us, govern us. We should unite around so that we don't end up fighting over preferences. Instead, we want to unite over the priority, these four priorities that are here. And I want us to see this so that we can just be reminded of what is our basis of our unity, what's the basis of our purpose for living, and it would just bring us together the way I believe the text is supposed to, calling us to. So let's look at it here. Look at verse 31 with me here. Let's look at this. The mission is accomplished by Jesus. Look at 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. Right? Verse 34 is making the point they didn't get it. Right, Three, three different ways. They couldn't comprehend it. But what's he saying? Jesus, he's making his way to Jerusalem. He's reminding them, now guys, this is where we're going, and I want to be real clear and tell you what is going to happen to me. I will be arrested. I will be beaten. I will be scourged. I will be turned over to the Romans. They will kill me. On the third day, I will rise from the dead. This whole thing is not a mistake. This is the eternal plan of God, and in fact, it was written in the Old Testament. It's there. The cross was not a, a, a moment of a mistake. It was the eternal plan of God. And Jesus has been making this point over and over and over again in Luke. You know, he said this in chapter 9, 22. He said the same thing. He's got to suffer these things and die and be rejected. And he goes on in, in chapter 9 a couple times saying that. Chapter 12, he says it. Chapter 13, he says it. Chapter 17, he's saying it over and over and over again. But they're not able to see it. They don't understand what he's saying. They don't understand the Old Testament scriptures point to it. And they have no clue what it means. Now, Luke's telling us this for a reason. Don't be hard on them. Don't be hard on them when they freak out. Don't be hard on Peter when he rejects Jesus. Don't be hard on them. God wouldn't let them see it, is the point. They couldn't pick it up, and that's okay. God doesn't want them to see it until the resurrection. When it's all done, then he'll open their eyes, and they'll get it, and they'll see the whole thing. But for now, don't, don't be too hard on them. But why is Jesus telling them this? Well, why focus on this thought of the cross? Why put this on here? Well, I want you to stop and think about this. The entire hope of our entire life, the entire hope of everything is centered on the cross. You don't earn your way to heaven, right? We know that. You can't, you can't undo your sin because the wages of sin is death, not good works. So we need this death. We need it, and it has to anchor us in our lives. But just for a moment, I want to ask you this one question. You believe that, but does the cross impact the way you live your life on a daily basis? And you might say, well, I don't know. What would that actually look like? Right? If I were to tell you, do you have a cross-centered life, you would say, I don't know. I believe in the cross. I trust Christ for my salvation. But what is the impact of that truth on the way you live? 
Well, what I want to do is I want to just take a moment and pause here in Luke because I think it's profitable for us to be reminded of the power of the cross and what it really practically means, what it really did accomplish for you. Luke doesn't go into great detail here. The whole of the gospel does. But for a moment, if we can pause this, I think it's appropriate to say, okay, this is true. Jesus is reminding him, this is what I'm about to do. But let me ask this question. What did the cross really accomplish in your life? Well, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, gives us ten blessings that come from the cross. Ten blessings. And I think it's appropriate to use Paul here and to insert those ten blessings here. Because this message of the cross is not just something we're to look at and go, yep, he died, that's it, that settled it, we're done. It's actually supposed to be a worldview. The cross is actually supposed to so impact your life that you process every moment differently because of the cross. So let me give you the ten things that Paul says in Romans. They're both in chapter 5 and in chapter 8. Let me just walk through these. The first thing he says in Romans 5.1 is he says, because of the cross, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. Romans 5.1. God is not mad at you. If you blew it this morning with a sin you have blown it with yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before, If you have trusted Christ, he is not mad at you. Your relationship with him is set in such a way that you can bring it to him and he will forgive you, he will restore you, you have peace with God. You don't have to earn his favor. You don't have to sit at your deathbed and say, did I do enough for you, God? God's saying the relationship is good. Christ died and we are good. We're good. Second blessing we have. We have access to the grace by which we stand. Romans 5, 2. That means this. You have access to grace today, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You stand in grace, which means that whatever you're struggling with, God will be patient to work it through with you. You have grace, and you stand in grace because Christ died. You have access to grace. Romans 5.3, because Christ died, you have joy in suffering. What does that mean? That means that, that, that no matter what comes my way and the pain that comes my way, I know two things, that God is going to carry me through and God is going to use it to advance his kingdom. And so even though I'm suffering and it hurts and I cry and it's painful, at the same token, I believe God is still present and he's still there and he's still using this in my life. Because Christ died, I have access to joy in suffering. Because Christ died, I have the promise that God's love is poured out through the Holy Spirit. Not only are you good with him, not only does he give you grace, He loves you. And His Spirit has poured out His love upon you to where you are someone He calls child, friend. I care about you. You have access to the love 
of God. Why? Because Christ died and was raised on the third day. That's what you have. You go to Romans chapter 8. He keeps going. Because Christ died and was raised, you have no condemnation from God. You never have to fear condemnation again. Why? Because the cross was the place where God poured all of his wrath and his anger out so that you wouldn't have to face it. You have no condemnation because of what Christ Jesus has done. Romans 8, 4. The righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in us. Meaning this, all of the 600 plus laws in the Bible, you get to actually fulfill. You get to carry out the intentions of them. Because God's poured his love out on your heart, you can love him and you can love others, and guess what? You're fulfilling the whole law, which means you go from a lawbreaker to a lawkeeper. Incredible. You will go to heaven as a lawkeeper. Why? Because you have his love that allows you to love him and love others. And the requirement of the law is now released from you. You're not condemned. Beautiful, isn't it? Another blessing. The spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is given to you. You might feel weak, but you've got the very power of the spirit that gave life to that body and raised it from the dead and allowed it to walk right through a wall. That spirit is in you because Christ was risen from the dead. Not only that, the spirit of sonship is given to us, and we can call God Daddy. We have such a good relationship with God, we can call him Abba, Daddy. It's that level of intimacy. You have intimacy with God. Not only that, the Spirit of God prays for you when you don't know what to pray for. Isn't that incredible? You could be in the worst place right now, feel completely gone away from God, and you want to know what's happening? There is a prayer service going on in heaven where the Spirit of God says, Father, I know your will for them. I know where they're at. I know what your plan is. I know why you created them. And so I'm praying exactly right now that your eternal purposes would be carried out in them. And that prayer service is going on even when you don't know how to pray. Why? Because Christ died and was raised from the dead. That's one of the benefits. And we have this great benefit Romans 8, 39, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Life, death, angels, principalities, nothing. There's nothing can get in the way because Christ died and was raised from the dead. Okay, so why do we need to know about the cross? This is meant to change your life. When you read these words in, in 831, you're not just supposed to say, see, it's proven. The Old Testament proves that Jesus is there. And we could go through all the Old Testament prophecies about the death of Jesus. We can go through Isaiah 53. We can go through all of these things and show it and just be some academic thing. When the reality is this is actually not just supposed to be some academic exercise that I can prove the death of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is meant to change my life so that I would recognize that I have peace with God, access to grace, joy and suffering, the love of God poured out on me. I'm not condemned. The law is fulfilled in me. The spirit that raised Jesus is given to me. The, I'm, God is my daddy. The spirit is praying for me. And nothing can get in the way of that relationship ever in this world. So the question is, do you have a cross-centered life? Does that stuff really impact the way you live? That's the question. If we're going to endure to the end... We have to see this 
as not just a historical event, which it was. We have to see it as a life-changing event that opened up to you a world that you need, we need, right? I need these truths to anchor my life. And if the cross doesn't anchor my life, then I will go through life worried and insecure and scared and upset and feeling unloved and feeling whatever. All these things, they'll own me. But the cross has to own me. And so Jesus accomplished everything. And I would encourage you to let the message of that cross own you. Because those ten things are incredible things, aren't they? I mean, those things are true. And they should just absolutely rock your world. They should. Okay, here's the first thing. Jesus accomplished this mission. Now, in light of the cross, what needs to happen? Now, we got to recognize, realize this, the disciples, they don't understand this at this point. What Jesus said was hidden from them, meaning God wouldn't allow them to see it. They couldn't grasp the meaning of it. They couldn't understand it theologically. They were, they were, they were disconnected. They couldn't see it. Okay? And that's okay. Keep that in mind. It comes important later as the story unfolds. Because vision and seeing is, is the centerpiece of this whole storyline. It's kind of an underlying theme that goes on here. But now, the truth of this gospel should cause something in me. What should it cause? It should cause me to call out for mercy. So notice the next story. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, so Jesus is approaching Jericho. He's getting close to Jerusalem. The crowds are just gathering around him. In the midst of a crowd is a blind man. The blind man, oftentimes they would sit outside the cities hoping to get travelers as they're coming in, begging and... Uh, and so this blind man's out there. The people are coming out. They hear, they say, Jesus uh, of Nazareth is coming. And what does he do? He begins to cry out, Jesus, son of David. It's an interesting title. It's a title that the Jews would have given saying the Messiah. But they understood that this Messiah was going to rule on the throne of David forever. So this guy doesn't just see him, Jesus Nazareth, like Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, the teacher from, from Nazareth. They see him actually, he sees him as the Messiah. And notice what he does. He's crying out for mercy. Very important to catch this. He doesn't just put his need out there, help me see. He's saying, give me mercy. What does mercy mean? Mercy is getting something you don't deserve. That's the whole key to the story here. He didn't feel like he deserved his sight. Give me mercy. Have mercy on me. Which means that if you don't give me my sight, that's okay. I don't deserve it. It's amazing to think about that, coming to God from the basis of crying out for mercy rather than demanding a result. Completely different thing, isn't it? It's a completely different mindset. But the mindset, our first connection with God, is a cry of mercy. If we see him for who he really is, the Messiah, which this man did, he was physically blind, but spiritually he could see. The disciples could physically see, but spiritually they couldn't. So 
So these guys are in two different categories in one sense. I think that's the contrast here. But he understood, you're the Messiah. I'm unworthy to be in your presence. I'm crying for mercy. Crying for mercy. Very important. The people are trying to keep him quiet, and he won't. The more they stop him, the more he cries. And I want you to catch that in the story. In fact, because it's important to see that, how he's reaching out to Jesus. And I remember when I was a youth pastor, my office was up at the top of these steps. And, uh, and I would go down these steps, and when I would get down to the bottom of the steps, right at the bottom of the steps was the nursery to the church. And during the week, they would have a, a women's Bible study on Thursdays. And when Anna was a baby, Heather used to go to the women's Bible study. And she would drop Anna off in the nursery. First time she dropped Anna off in the nursery, I wasn't making all the connects of everything. And Anna was a year, year and a half old, something like that. And I come walking down the steps, and Anna sees me in the nursery. She wasn't, she wasn't all that certain about being in the nursery to begin with. And so she sees her dad. So what does she do? Ah! Ah! Right, she just starts screaming. And, uh, and I foolishly, hey, Anna, how you doing? Hey, sweetie. Hey, my daughter's at work. And I walk away. And, uh, and the nursery worker's like, this college student is like, what did you just do? And she's screaming, screaming. She just, I'm walking away, and she's, ah! So the nursery worker says, hey, could you kind of just stay in your office during the ladies' Bible study so that you don't do this? Because I couldn't calm her down. Couldn't get her calm. And I was thinking about that because I was thinking, this man wants one thing and nothing will stop him. If I went into that nursery and picked up Anna, she would have stopped crying, right? She wanted one thing. Want my dad. Get me out of here. And that's this man. This man saying, I want, the more you try to quiet me, the louder I'm going to scream. Eternal Messiah, have mercy. Right? He's just screaming this. That's what he's saying. Eternal Messiah, show mercy to me. I need mercy. That's what I need. I need one thing. So Jesus, was he the verse 40? Let's jump into the story. And Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him. Right? The people don't want that. Remember, they, didn't, they looked down on people who were sick. They thought they were cursed. They thought God was cursing them. So he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? That's a good question to ask him because all he was asking for was mercy. He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. What do you want? I want my sight. And Jesus said, you know what? Here's the thing. Your faith has made you well. Here's the connection I want you to make here. True faith. One of the evidences of true faith is the understanding of mercy. True faith is not just a kind of an academic belief that, you know, I could sit here and logically prove to you that Jesus is the Messiah. I could show you all the evidences and basically win an argument with you. And let's say I beat you. Let's say you're here and you say, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And I just logically drill you into the ground to where I just win it on the basis of the rules of a debate. That doesn't mean you have faith. 
How do you know if you have faith? You have faith when you see Jesus for who he is and you see yourself for who you are. And the only response is have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. Which means if you walk away and you don't give me my sight, that's okay. I deserve to be blind. If you don't answer my prayer, that's okay. I deserve where I'm at. Have mercy on me, right? That's, that's, that's how you know you have faith. When you surrender what you feel is your sense of justice and you put yourself in the justice of God. And you recognize I am a sinner and you are the Savior. I am imperfect, you are perfect. Nothing do I bring to this conversation. You bring it all. Have mercy on me. And Jesus says, you see, your faith, you see, how, do we, how does he know that was real faith? Because he was crying for mercy. Your faith has made you well. Notice what the man did. What were his two responses? Obedience, worship. I want to live for you now, and I'm giving praise to God. How do you know if there's real faith? Because you're crying for mercy. How do you know that the impact, if, if real faith is really playing itself out in your life, it's saying when God displays that mercy, you say, I'm all in for you, man. I'm all in. I'm not trying to have you in the world. I'm not trying to balance both of these things. I'm not trying to get my eyesight so I can get my business back because think about how much I could do for you if I had good business and I could give a lot to missions and all this stuff. And, and I need a little bit of me time too. There's a little bit of me in here. I need this. And Jesus, you know, I need... No, man, I'm all in for you. world means nothing anymore. Crying for mercy. If the blessing, if God's blessing in your life does not drive you to worship and obedience then you should question your faith. That's the harshness of it. If the blessings of God does not drive you to worship God, to am all in. But if God's blessing makes you love this world all the more, right? If you've been given material blessing and you say, man, I just, my heart's divided between the world and God, then we need to say, wait a minute. I want to go back to the faith of a child. Say, I'm, I'm all in for you, man. Crying out, all I want is you, Jesus. And, and that's what we should be praying for. God, mold my heart to live for you. Now, to make sure we get the point, we have one more story. We have one more story to make sure we get the point. Because he wants us to see how this, this falls in. And so, so, because he says, listen, Jesus accomplished it all. Our response is to cry for mercy. And our response is to follow Jesus. Notice this last point here. And he entered Jericho. So that thing occurred right outside of Jericho. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. It is really hard to study that song and not sing, or study this passage and not sing the song in your head. All week long, I've been running around and going, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Seriously, <laughs> it was like, it was in my head. I couldn't get it out. In fact, at one point, I was kind of reviewing the sermon in my head. And I was thinking, you know, Zacchaeus was small. And I started doing this by myself in my office. He was a wee little man. I'm like, stop it. You know, it's like the hand signals from the song took me over. It was crazy. I thought about singing it just to get it out, but I thought that might hurt. It might cause us to live it, live it more in our head. But anyways, because I know you're all thinking about the song. So 
But what's going on? You know the story. But maybe a couple things you, you might miss in the story in, because we, we, we're so familiar with the song. First of all, notice he was a chief tax collector. you got to catch that. He wasn't just a tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. So being a tax collector is really bad. And then being a chief tax collector is even worse. I'll tell you why. Okay, we've talked about tax collectors in the past here. Just review of what they were. Right? The Roman government would exercise taxes on people. And they would hire people from within the different countries to get those taxes. And they would tell them, you can add whatever tax you want on top of the Roman government tax to make your living. So if I'm a tax collector, I could say, okay, Heather, you owe me. The Roman government wants $1,000 from you this year, and I want to add another $1,000 on top of it. So now she's got to pay me $2,000. If she doesn't pay me the $2,000, what happens? I can throw her in jail. I have that kind of power. Now, the tax collectors were set up, like any government bureaucracy, in divisions. So they had divisions of tax collectors over different regions. And you had one senior tax collector who ruled all the divisions of tax collectors. And you know how he would get paid? He would add his fee on top of the tax collector's fee. So if I'm a chief tax collector and I say, Mike, you're my tax collector. The Roman government wants $1,000. You add what you want. So how much you want to add to yours? 5,000. All right, good. All right. So you're adding 5,000. So right now, you guys are all in the hole for six grand for Mike for this year. But I need to eat. So I'm going to add 3,000. No, 4,000. Let's make it an even 10 then. Okay? So now Mike has to go get 1,000 from the Roman government, 5,000 for his pocket, and 4,000 for my pocket. So the chief tax collector isn't collecting taxes from anybody. He's sitting at the top of this pyramid scheme, raking in the dough. He's just got to manage his people. That's what he's doing. So he's making a lot of money for very little work, which really annoys people to begin with, let alone adding on top and taking from the people. And he's making a boatload of cash. He is really rich. So you got this guy. He's short, which is part of the story here. And, and because he's short, Jesus is coming into town. He's coming into Jericho. He can't see. And you can imagine these people not wanting to make room for this wicked little man. Right? I'm going to make room for him. Get out of here, man. You're not, we're, in fact, we're going to keep you from seeing Jesus. Right? They're going to bog them out. So what does he do? He runs. So what does he do? Notice verse 4. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, you come down. <laughs> I'm telling you, the song is just like, ooh, it's haunting me right now. <laughs> Should we finish it? For I'm going to your house today. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So he hurried and he came down. And he received him joyfully. So, well, you got to catch here just a little bit of the, the, the idea. The sycamore trees were actually on the other side of the town. It's important to know this. This him climbing into a sycamore tree is important to the story. That, that it, he didn't just say he climbed into a tree, he climbed into a sycamore tree. Why is that important? Sycamore tree was way over on the outside of the town. So Jesus is passing through the town. He's almost to the other side. So basically Zacchaeus runs ahead. He climbs up into the tree and he's on the other side of the town. Why am I making a big deal about that? 
And that day, when you arrived in a town, generally you spent the night in that town. Why would you spend the night? Because, it would, you know, the distances between towns, by the time you walked to a particular, from one town to the next town, you wouldn't have time to make it to the next town before dark. And you didn't travel at night because there were robbers out there and it was very dangerous. So typically you would arrive into a town and you would stay at someone's house and hospitality was huge in the Jewish culture. And so you could be, if we were in a Jewish culture, somebody could just knock on your door and say, hi, here's my family. We're staying here for a month. And you'd have to take care of them. That's just what would happen. Jesus, though, is looking like he's heading out of the town. He's picked no one to stay with. That's the point of the story. He's picked none of the good people to stay with. He gets to the other side because the sycamore trees were on the outskirts of the town because they dropped these little things all over the place and they didn't like them. So they liked the wood of the trees, but they didn't like the dropping. So they planted the trees around the outside of the town. And so the picture is this. He's making his way through the town, gets to the outside of the town. He hasn't shown any sign that he's going to stay with anybody. And then there's this evil little guy up in a tree. And Jesus says, I'm going to your house. Now, you might think Jesus was being bold there. You could do that in that day. I'm telling you, we could go into a village if this were, you know, a couple thousand years ago, walk into the village, knock on the door and say, hi, we're staying. And they would have to put you off. So Jesus, who does he pick? The wicked little guy. And so what happens in verse 7? And when they saw it, right, the people, they all grumbled. He is going in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. How in the world could he go there? Zacchaeus is pumped. He's excited. The rest of the people are saying, oh, my word. I cannot believe we just saw that. He can't, you can't go there. Christians don't go there because they wouldn't have said that, right? That would have been their response today. You can't go in there. Do you realize what they do in that house? A bunch of heathen sinners. You cannot go there. You can't call yourself the rabbi of Israel and go hang with those people. It makes no sense. But notice what happens. What's the response? They get to the house. Notice verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, which... I was, you know, sorry, the image of just this little guy standing. You know, it's like, you know, oh, is he standing? No, I'm kidding. You know, he's short, you know. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Very powerful statement there. We just looked last week at the rich young ruler. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler? He said, you lack one thing. Give what you have to the poor and follow me. And he said, no, I'm really rich. I don't want that. What does this guy do, man? He's not even prompted. He says, you know what? I, I got all this money. Given half of it to the poor. The other half, here's what I'm going to do with it. It shows you how wealthy it is. If I've defrauded anyone which is really just a way of saying, yes, you've defrauded probably everyone, right? I'm going to return their money 400%. Huge. Could you imagine the IRS coming to you saying, hey, past 25 years, we've had pretty high taxes. 
So we're going to return those taxes. 400%. (laughs) Like, it would be amazing. This guy's just, don't dream about that now. Sorry. You know, (laughs) some of you are going, yeah, what would I do? (laughs) Okay. He gives it back. And then Jesus says, you know what, man? Is this guy saved because he gave his money away? No. We know that. We talked about that last week. He can't be saved because he gave his money away because then he'd be unsaving all the people who received his money. Okay? So you can't do that. That's not the point. What's going on in his heart? He's saying, I'm done with this world. I'm done with it. I am not living for the world anymore. I'm all in with you, Jesus. All in. And Jesus says, man, you are saved. And not only that, you're a son of Abraham. Why is Jesus saying that? Because that was what the Jews would have used to describe somebody who was saved. They called themselves children of Abraham. I'm in the covenant. You know what he's saying? Welcome into the covenant, my my beloved man. You are in the family. They out there have kicked you out of the family. I'm telling you, you're in the family. Why? Because you're all in with me. And he's letting everybody know, you guys see him as a sinner. I see him as a child of Abraham. He's restored. Jesus completely restored him there. This guy just said, man, I'm all in for you. So here's our point. Let's, let's, get, let's see where we've, the mission accomplished by Jesus. We cry out for mercy. The mission, then that mercy causes me to say, I'm all in, man. The world means nothing anymore. It's only you. It's what I want to live for. And then Jesus makes this statement, which is our last point. What is this mission about? For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You want to know why I'm in the house with this guy? Because that's my mission. I'm going after people who are completely living for this world, and I'm plucking them out of the world, and I'm bringing them into the kingdom. Remember the story, Jesus told the story of a banquet. A king offered a banquet, invited a bunch of guests, none of the guests showed up. So he sent his servants out to do what? You go out to the highways and byways. You can get the poor people. You can get the lame people. This table will be filled at the banquet. That's what Jesus is saying, man. I am filling that banquet table for the end of the age. I'm, I'm getting the parade of nations ready to go, man. And they'll be coming in from every tribe and tongue. And they'll be worshiping Jesus, presenting their lives to him. It's going to be a beautiful day. This is what's going on. See, Jesus is about seeking and saving the lost. This is why he died. Which means what? Do we catch that about the mission? Every component of our life then has to be molded by this. This is where Luke's going to take us all the way to the end. We are witnesses of this mission. Now, there's some things. I wanna, I'm going to click them off quick here because we're, we're out of time. But I love the fact that you know when you talk about seeking and saving the lost and, and what that means to seek and save the lost, you know, I love the fact that Matthias Media, uh, it's, a, it's a publishing house out of Australia, they've kind of said, hey, we want to help people understand what that means. How every relationship and everything that, that goes on can be used in that process. Because you might think seeking and saving the lost means I've got to walk up and down the street with tracks, and I've got to get people into the kingdom right there. And so those of you who are natural evangelists, you get all pumped about that. You know, if I told you you're taking tracks, you're going to walk home. And every person you see, you got to give them a track. You natural evangelists are going, yeah! And all you introverts are going, no! I'm not going there. I can't do that. But, you know, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. They, I'm going to hit these, these quick. They say, listen, 
There's a whole process that goes on when God seeks and saves the lost. If you look at the whole of the Bible. And they kind of broke it down into eight categories. Let me just quickly give them to you. He says, you know, first category, sometimes when, when God is at work, sometimes he's just raising awareness, letting people know you're there, letting them know you care. That's what our offices downtown do, the big banner out there. We're Kishwaukee Bible Church. We're here. And it works. People come in the door. Right? So part of that process sometimes is letting people know. That's why we do things in the community. We're just letting people know we're there. Why? Because, you see, God's in the mission seeking and saving. It's hard to seek and save and, and be part of that mission if I don't know people. And if they don't know, I'm there. I can't do it from my basement, so I raise awareness. Then sometimes you get meaningful conversation. People know you're there and you care. People will open up their lives. Short illustration of that, since we've been in our offices, we've, uh, we have people occasionally coming out of the county jail. The police are really good. They give you a one-way ride to jail. And when you get out of jail, they're not there to take you back home. So occasionally we have people wander out of the county jail, and they don't know what to do. They don't even understand our bus system around here because there's not a lot of clear signs. And so, occasionally they wander in our offices. This year, there's been one young man who's been in and out four times. Okay? I've gotten to know him. And I've gotten to take him home four times. And in his last time I got to take him home, we had a wonderful conversation about his home life. He opened up. I'm not praying he goes into jail more. I said, listen, I want you back, but not under these circumstances. He said, come on back, though. Come on back. I want to talk to you. Meaningful conversation. Why? Because that will lead to pre-evangelism. They say, then we start talking about the truth of the gospel. Then comes evangelism. Let me click them off quickly, where I can actually call someone to repentance. And then there's follow-up, which is establishing them in the truth. Then there's nurturing, helping people live out their faith. Then there's training, helping people find their place in the kingdom. And then there's sending, releasing someone into ministry. Now, why am I telling you all that? Jesus is on this mission, and, and, and I love that those eight categories because they help us see that, that some of you maybe are part of the process of raising awareness. Some of you might just be walking around, you're in the schools, and you're just letting people know we're Kishwaukee Bible Church, we're here, we're there. Some of you are really good having very meaningful conversations. Some of you are really good when the time comes to say, you've got to repent. Some of you are really good at nurturing people and discipling people. And all of this, some of you are good at training and sending people into the mission. And wherever you fall in that, this is the mission Jesus is on. This is what it means to seek and save the lost. Get this guy, Zacchaeus, into the kingdom. Now, I wanted to give you those eight things so you can get the picture of this because this is what's supposed to govern our life. So let's wrap this up. What does all this mean? These three stories are helping us understand Jesus has come to die. The cross is doing its work. We are to respond in crying out for mercy and following him. Because this is the mission he's on. That people would cry for mercy and follow him. This is what should define us. And in fact, I would say this. I would love our church to rally around those four truths. In fact, I'll say it this way. Why don't we rally around the cross? those truths. Let's encourage each other as cross-centered people. Let's say, this is the message we believe wholeheartedly. This is what Christ did. He died for sinners, and this is what it means. Let's make that our message. Then let's rally around mercy. Let's just say, I'm not worthy of any of this, God. Because if we don't rally around mercy, then we're never going to serve others. We're only going to be serving ourselves, and then this church will just be the place that I want it to be. And I don't like the fact that you're doing it this way. Let's do away with that. Let's come in here to serve others 
because we recognize I've received everything because of God's mercy. Then let's rally around following, okay? Let's, not, let's no longer live by the world. Let's say, man, I want to be part of what Jesus is doing. And what is that? Let's rally around his mission. He is out seeking and saving the lost. And maybe see those eight things that Matthias Media has helped us to see drive us as a church. That's a great rallying point. Jesus is not the power to help you accomplish your vision in life. Jesus empowers you to join his. And if you can catch that, it'll change your life. Let's join me in prayer, would you? Father, I thank you for these great stories. Thank you that your spirit under Luke put this together in such a way that it it's meaningful, it's impactful. I thank you for the totality of Scripture to help us understand these truths. Lord, may we rally around these as a church. May it own us. May it cause us to, to cry out for mercy, to follow you, and to join you in what you're doing in this world. Lord, let that be our rallying cry as a body. Not anything else. Let your word shape us that we might live according to it and nothing else. In Christ's name.